I'm so sick for kids nowadays who, you know, come out of school owing $200,000 or $300,000. I'm not convinced that that's necessary. I think it's quite well known now that the greatest entrepreneurs from this field are mostly college dropouts. (laughs) So, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you that their curiosity and their entrepreneurial spirit was much more important than anything else to their success. The founders of Google did not drop out of college. So it's not the same in every case, but don't think that you need to come out of college with $300,000 in debt to be successful. You don't. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by Chief Revenue Officer Dave McCarthy. Thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. Tell us about your path to the present moment. Where did you go to college? What did you plan to pursue? And did you ever consider a different career? Yeah, I certainly considered a lot of different careers. I think growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I don't know why, but I was just one of those kids who, you know, early on would tell everybody, I'm going to go to Harvard, I'm going to be a lawyer. I remember I had a bumper sticker on my door when I was 13 that said, don't steal, the government hates competition, which I can't believe that I had that on my door at 13. So I was kind of always had that kind of mind frame, like I wanted to be in the law or and then that kind of transitioned a little bit into just wanting to be in business. But honestly, I went to college at SUNY Albany and I really had no idea at that point. I think when I entered college is when I was the least sure of what I wanted to do. I ended up being an English major and I joke now to my kids that if you tell me you're going to be an English major, I'm going to tell you I'm not paying for college. But I left Albany with a love of reading and an appreciation for the world, which I don't think I would have got if I spent my time just with my nose in in legal books. But really, I remember when I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, and it was before that in high school. And my dad knew that I wanted to be a lawyer and introduced me to somebody that he knew was a Putnam County lawyer. And the first thing he said to me was, don't be a lawyer. It's a terrible life. And, and And really, I could tell that he meant it. You know, he really looked unhappy in his career. And as I've gone on through my career, uh, I think I made the right decision. And I think a lot of people have law degrees and do amazing things with them. But when the lawyers that I know, it's, it's a lifestyle that, that I'm not really looking for. A lot of time spent reading copious case law and things like that, which I just don't have the capacity for now. But I graduated from Albany with an English degree. And I was super, super blessed to have been entering the workforce during the time of the internet. So I didn't start there. My first job was at J. Walter Thompson. And J. Walter Thompson is, as you might know, one of the largest ad agencies in the world, part of the WPP group. And for me, it was a great stepping stone into the professional world. I was initially commuting from home from my parents' house. I was making $27,000 a year. I joke, I quickly got a terrible place on 28th and Lex, which back then was really terrible. And I joke that I either had lobster for lunch or a peanut butter sandwich. And I would go to the supermarket and I would buy a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. And that's what I would eat unless I had a, a client meal. When I first started at J. Walter Thompson, it was such a transitionary time. People did not have the internet yet on their computers. Slowly, like different people would start to get it. People were smoking in their offices. It was just extremely different times, so transitional. 
And about two years into this, which I, I really enjoyed my time there. I, I love J. Walter Thompson. I really loved who I worked with a lot of young people. I was exposed to a lot of opportunity. I was a media buyer for um, a company called Warner Lambert, and they produced Rolades, Listerine, all packaged good products. And I was a chief buyer for Rolades, which was perfect. So I was basically buying ad time on male-dominated programming. So ESPN, TNT, MTV, Comedy Central. And through that, got lots of perks. I think I went to every 1998 playoff game that the Yankees were in. And so it was kind of wonderful like that. But the internet came calling and I answered. So I switched from J. Walter Thompson and the world of TV media buying to the digital space. And I joined a company called Sandbox, sandbox sandbox.com. And sandbox.com was one of the first fantasy sports websites. And it's too bad they didn't make it because fantasy football in general, but fantasy sports at large have become just massive, massive billion dollar businesses. So I was there for four years and that was it. And I I really kind of dove right in as a media coordinator. So the salespeople would sell sponsorships or email rentals, and I would be responsible for setting up the campaign, taking the creative in, doing what's called trafficking. So making sure it runs correctly, helping them to track it. And then I graduated from that to being a salesperson myself and really enjoyed what I was doing in the internet. And and I'd say that I've stayed on that career path ever since. So I would really, you know, I'm the chief revenue officer of of Tightrope Interactive, and I've been there for almost 13 years now. And I'd say I'm, I'm a sales guy. And what I sell is digital space. If you're selling digital space, then you really don't have that many worries in life. So uh, I've, I've not that, you know, it's such an easy job and you're making tons of money, but you know, you're not curing cancer. You're not digging ditches. You're not, you know, it's, it's a, it's been a comfortable life. And uh, so I, I got lucky with some of the choices I made for sure. Did your parents play a role in your decision-making? I wouldn't say so. They, they certainly helped me early on. They were able to get me a few interviews. None of them worked out, but one of them was with a, a different ad agency. So that kind of opened my eyes to the world of advertising. You know, growing up, my mom was a nurse, psychiatric nurse, working 12-hour shifts, and my dad had a bunch of jobs. So at one point, he was an accountant, then a bus driver, you know, with a bunch of stuff in between. In a formative sense, seeing how hard they worked and what they did had a great influence on me, but they always let me make my own decisions, for better or worse. And that, that includes, you know, what I chose to study in school, where I worked, where I lived, so they were always very supportive, but yeah, I went a completely different direction than anything they were doing, not because I thought there was anything wrong with what they were doing, but I love, and I thought my skill sets were around talking, dealing with other people. And when I got that opportunity, I kind of just went for it and was able to be successful. So, you know, I'd say they were helpful in that they were always supportive. What qualities or attributes do you think are necessary to work and thrive in this field? You know, the tech space now has changed and is changing all the time. So where it used to be that having any kind of engineering or coding experience was enough to get you in the door. Now it's, it's gotten competitive. So, you know, if you were to look at the tech space now, if you wanted to get involved, like, let's say like 
look at the best companies to work at, what people would assume are the best companies, something like Google, you've got to be the best of the best. It's gotten that it's gotten so competitive now. So I have a story that's kind of funny where I have a good friend who had a company called RightsFlow and they did digital music licensing. As small as if you were a local church and you wanted to put together an album of Christmas songs, you were supposed to license that content and he would help streamline that process for you. He was down to his last dime and Google bought them because they needed that ability and that tool for YouTube. YouTube was dealing with a bunch of issues around unlicensed use of songs in the videos being posted on YouTube. So their company ended up being a really nice solution for that. So they were purchased by Google. And about two years into that marriage there, their head engineer, who was a really smart guy named Ben, uh, went to some of the HR people at Google and said, I want to uh, work on Chrome. You know, Chrome's, I think, going to be a great browser and I really think it's going to be popular. And, you know, I've been working on RightsFlow forever. How could I get on the Chrome team, essentially? And the Google HR person said, well, first thing you have to do is apply at MIT, get accepted, get a four-year degree from there. And then come back and apply for an engineering job at, at, at Google again, because we're happy to have you work on RightsFlow. But if you want to do anything else at Google, it's going to require some hardcore engineering training. So I think if you, if you want to be in the tech space and on the tech side of the tech space, you got to learn a lot about the tools you'll be working with. And for me, I, I would love for my kids to code. And I think that that skill set is applicable to almost any career now. So when I moved here, one of the first things that I did is, you know, in kind of my community involvement direction was to start a program called Code Springers. And we ran out of the Desmond Fish Library and the idea was get kids exposed to code. And it was so rewarding. And just through the years now, the 10 years that that I've been here, I've seen kids who, you know, they were seven or eight. And then, you know, one of them in particular I met there, kept in touch with him. Second, he turned 16. I reached out to his mom, have him come intern for me. He interned for me all the way through high school. And now he goes to RPI and is just a genius and he's on his way to, to massive success. So, you know, if you want to be an engineer at one of these big tech companies, you've got to really love what you're doing. You've got to love coding. Most of the people that I see that are successful in that arena have done a lot of self-teaching. A lot of watching YouTube videos, a lot of playing around, a lot of curiosity. And I think that's like probably the most important trait for um, people who are super successful in the tech space, especially the entrepreneurs or the developers. They're curious. They want to figure things out, how they work. And that's really why I loved teaching kids coding. And, and I think it takes kids from being a user of these digital devices and it turns them into creators of things on these digital devices. And if you know a kid who knows how to code, or who's really curious about coding, I guarantee you they're not on Facebook. They're not on Instagram. They're not on TikTok because they're not, that's, they're not, probably not even really big gamers. They're more curious and figuring, more interested in learning how these things work than they are in just being users of them. So that's it. I'd say be curious. If you want to be like me on the business side of things, then, you know, it's a lot about just paying your dues you know, getting an entry-level position at a company as a salesperson or a coordinator and just working your way up. I mean, honestly, for me, I've been in this space now for since 98, so 20 years, which is crazy. And I'd say my most valuable trait to a company who might want to hire me are my connections. 
And those are things you just acquire over time and you have to pay your dues. You know, you need to start with that job where you get $27,000 a year and you're eating peanut butter sandwiches. And then you'll work your way up through hard work, good relationship building, and you know, just trying really hard. So I think there's two totally different paths you could take to have success in the tech world. You know, one is the path that I've gone and the other is, is the one I described around you know, the engineering side. So for those kids who are curious in terms of what that means in terms of paying your dues, how long does one expect to do that? You know, it depends a lot on the company, and that's why you have to make the right decisions for yourself. Like, I'll give you an example. You know, I started at a company called Sandbox. The sales team was probably 10 people, and I was a coordinator, so I worked, I serviced the five salespeople. And within two years, I became a salesperson because there was some turnover, and I, you know, was a hard worker, and I knew what I was doing, so it was a natural transition for me. I was at the Google office in New York last year for a meeting, and I was met by a young lady at the door, and, and her job was essentially to get me my credentials, lead me to my meeting room, and, and that's it. And then she went back down to meet the next person. And on the elevator ride, I asked her, you know, where did you work before this? And it was the World Bank. You know, and she went to Stanford, I think. And, you know, it was just, it just made no sense to me that you would go to a company like Google where... It must be so hard to break through and it must take years unless you're, you know, an engineer, then it could take, you could come right out of MIT and be impactful. So it really depends on the company that you, you start at. And I would give the advice to, you know, my kids or any other kid. I mean, if you can get a good job at Google or Facebook, that's certainly tempting, but a smaller company where you're going to get to know the higher level people and they're going to take some time to mentor you is so much more valuable than being a no-name at a company of 20,000 people where the bureaucracy is just almost impossible to even comprehend, let alone navigate as a 21-year-old kid. So that would be my advice, you know, and I think there's different ways to do it based on, you know, where you go. I think startups are a great way to play, great place to start too. You do everything. You wear many hats at a startup and there's tons of startups in the tech space still. When it comes to paying your dues, choose a company where you're going to get exposed to a lot of different opportunities because you probably don't know what you want to do yet. And you want to see and get a taste of everything. And then you can make that really, really important life decision, which I think happens after your first job or in the middle of that first job, not before you take that first job. At least that's been my experience. How do you think your profession has changed you? Changed me. Good question. Well, I think I had to drop all shyness, that's for sure. Early on, realized I had to I had to be social. I had to be able to talk to people. That was an important transformation for me. I've gotten to travel a lot, which was great. I've experienced two dot-com crashes in my fairly short career. So that is um, a character builder like no other character builder. Twice I've been at companies where Man, we were counting our money, you know, we were selling and we were going to all be rich. And then next thing you know, it's over. Not, you know, not only did it not happen, but the company, you know, went under or, or had layoffs. So a lot of resiliency. I learned a lot about, you know, the ups and downs of a career by being in the tumultuous world of, of the Internet. No one's safe. I mean, look at WeWork now, right? I mean, they were 
on their way to being the hottest IPO of the last decade. And then within the last two months, they've become you know, a shell of what they were. And the CEO is gone. And everybody's talking about how it was possibly the worst run company ever. And, and they've pulled their IPO and billions in valuation has been lost. And, and all those people who thought they were going to get rich on their options are now going to get nothing. And that builds character. That's tough. I mean, that sticks with you. That's really, really hard. I'll tell you, it gets harder and harder, too, because <laughs> when you're, you know, when you're in your 40s and that happens, that really hurts because you're kind of like, oh, I could see the finish line almost. Right. Maybe I can retire early. And then when that doesn't happen, that, that stings. So, you know, learned a lot about taking taking a punch and then shaking off and rebuilding. And Tightrope had one of those exact instances where we thought we were going to sell and it fell apart, not really through any fault of our own. I didn't really know what I was going to do in those first few days. And then just like I've always said, we've got it easy. We've got a good life here. We do internet advertising. We're not curing cancer. Shake yourself off, get back on the street, get your nose to the grindstone and and let's rebuild here. Luckily, I've been able to do that a couple of times. And it's, it's really, I think, helped me build some strong character. Do you generally like the people you work with? those that have been attracted to the field that work alongside you as colleagues? I do, you know, perhaps to my detriment, you know, here at Tightrope, there's 15 of us in one big room and it's great, but it's also terrible. You know, you know, when you're in a room like that and you're, the collaboration is so vivid and and you could just grab ideas from so many different people in the room and at any time and I've just really loved that and when you're in that type of environment you can't help but become friends with people and that can be hard too because sometimes as a manager you have to make tough decisions and the closer you are to those people you know the harder it is to make really tough decisions so all in all I consider my colleagues to be my friends and you close to family. I mean, the reality is I spend more time with the guy who sits next to me than I do with my wife, right? Or my kids. So if you're going to be in that type of environment, then you should try to get along. And certainly I wouldn't want to work with somebody who I couldn't get along with. I, I could, and I, I do, <laughs> you know, there's certainly people that I don't like as much as I like somebody else, but I appreciate them for what they bring to the company or for the skill set that they have available to them. You know, it's been a great run, and I have so many close friends through the past 20 years that I've been in this space that I only got through where I've worked, and um, that has certainly been one of the most rewarding parts of work for me. Is there anything that surprised you about this field? Is it what you expected? It was new when I started, so I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. Early on, I thought that I was going to be, you know, I think we all thought that we were all going to be, we were all going to be rich. You know, I was around at a time when just if you owned a domain that was good, like I remember pets.com, just because they had that domain was valued at, a, you know, $500 million or something for the name alone. So I think that I learned that, um, you know, that's not the case. It's not, you really had to have a business. And it took a long time for internet companies to catch on to that, I believe. The time where you could just have a 
good domain or you could sell products for cheaper than you were buying them for, but still be um, a, a really valuable company that those times are gone. So now it's about offering a good service, providing a good product uh, and running a good business. And I think that when I was a young and naive kid, I thought it would be a lot easier than it actually is. So that was a big change. I didn't realize the types of personalities I'd have to deal with and the differences between somebody in IT versus somebody in business development. You know, like I said, I'm in a room with 15 people. Half the room hates the sun and gets angry when I open the curtain. And the other half, you know, wants nothing more than bright sunlight, loud music and to play ping pong. So navigating that and being a manager of those two different groups of people has been something that I, you know, had no idea I would be doing um, when I got into the space 20 years ago. You know, it's business is business. And I think the core components of what make you successful are what I thought they would be. Hard work, intelligence, trying to understand the environment that you're in, being a good leader, working for good leaders, all those things which I, I always thought would, would be important are important. And I think it turns out that, you know, the internet space is much like any other space where the cream rises to the top in most cases. That's a little bit reassuring. Let's talk about the major obstacles or challenges that you might have had to overcome. Sure. Well, when I was at Sandbox, we were doing great. I mean, we were you know, looking at being purchased by Lycos and we were selling our ad space for what's called a very high CPMs. And CPM is cost per thousand impressions. So that means for every thousand people who would come to our website, we might make $10 just for a simple banner. And it seemed like within an instant that went down to zero. So just the entire marketplace dried up almost overnight. What accounted for that? A lot of it was that the companies that were spending money were spending borrowed money and they were not profitable. They weren't making money. So they were unable to continue once funding for their businesses ran dry. So that was a big part of it. And then I think it was changing so much. Like we were a fantasy sports website. So, um, and this was how early on it was. Some of our biggest advertisers were casinos and sports books because there were no laws yet to make those things illegal. And that went away overnight. Just one day, all of a sudden, the government said, wait, this this should be illegal based on Telecommunications Act from 1960 or something like that, which basically was written to make it illegal to call a bookie and place a bet over the phone. And they said, oh, that applies to the Internet, too. So that went dry. So I've often had to deal with just the absolute loss of major advertisers or total industries and you really, we really had to redo how we sell our space. And for us, what that entailed was switching from a cost per thousand model CPM to a cost per acquisition model, a CPA, where the advertiser would only pay us if we help them sell a product. And that's the way that the internet actually moved, right? Now the internet is almost all either CPA or CPC. It's very, the, the accountability in term when you're advertising on the internet is incredible. And in fact, whether it went that way or not, for all intents and purposes went there because the advertisers can track the performance of every single dollar they spend. When I was at J. Walter Thompson, we would buy 
a 30-second commercial on ESPN, on SportsCenter. I will hope it leads to sales, right? You don't really know. But if you spend $10 on Google, you see who clicked on your ad, where they went, what pages they went to on your site, did they buy anything or not, where they dropped off. If they come back, say you're Barnes & Noble, they go to Google, they search for something, go to your website, then they go to your store, you could tell that, right? Because Google's on everybody's phone nowadays. So that was one big change. Then I think the other challenge, one of the other big challenges that we all deal with is the dominance of certain players in this space and what that means. Google can destroy your business in a minute. And I'll give you an example of that. It used to be that if you went to Google and you searched for flights from JFK to LAX, flight from New York to Los Angeles, you would get a bunch of results that would lead you to sites that you probably knew, like Travelocity, Hotwire, Priceline. Now what happens if you go to Google and you search for a flight from JFK to LAX? They give you the results themselves. Google does. They've completely destroyed that third-party travel business. And they do that with hotels. They do that with content sites. So go right now and do a search for which president was Abraham Lincoln. It used to be that you'd see a list of maybe history.com, Wikipedia. Now, Google just tells you right there. Boom. They'll give you a little snippet of the top site. There's no need to go to those other websites anymore. Google wants to own that user completely, and they've completely destroyed so many businesses like that. That's a challenge. So we were, you know, we had a very big travel advertiser and we had to deal with the loss of Google, essentially. The number one driver of traffic became our number one competitor through one change that Google made. That's just something that everybody is dealing with in this space because Google is so, so big and so dominant. You know, the way you deal with that, uh, it varies, but you have to find other ways to find users, right? Or you have to change your model or you have to have extra value that you add that Google cannot. At the end of the day, Google is not, they'll provide that backend service, but they're not going to provide the customer comforts and touch points that people are used to. So that's where really the birth of rewards programs and other incentives like that came into play as ways to get users, instead of booking with Google, Go to Travelocity or Priceline and get a cheaper deal or get an opportunity to bid on your ticket and get a super cheap price instead of the listed price. So it's been tough and it's something that players in this space have to deal with all the time. It's gotten very, very consolidated. It used to be, look at the search space, right? When I got into the internet, it was Google, yeah, but it was also Yahoo, Alta Vista, Ask, Right. I mean, anybody go to any of those sites anymore? No. So dealing with these monster conglomerates has been a big challenge in our space. And sometimes, honestly, all I could do is move on to another vertical, you know, stop trying to make it work in the travel space because I can't compete with Google. But you know what? I can compete with or I can help an online university get customers or I can't because Google can't provide those classes, right? I very frequently in my time had to completely change course in terms of the types of products and services that we were promoting because of conditions in the market. Do you ever see a time when these behemoths eliminate 
all the other businesses on the internet and take it all for themselves and become the sole employers? You know, I'm very, very interested in the proliferation of monopolies in this space. I don't know. I mean, I do know that Google is the biggest lobbyist in the United States. They spend more money on lobbying than any other company. I do know that they are dominant, that they will buy up any competitor that really gives them any real threat. I don't know. I mean, I, I think there, I can't imagine a time when somebody is generating more web searches than Google or even competing with them. But I also couldn't remember a time when people didn't use Windows as their operating system. That seemed impossible to me. Or that didn't use Internet Explorer, right? That's all anybody used. And especially when Microsoft beat Netscape, it seemed like, oh man, they're going to own that browser and they're going to own the desktop space forever. But that's not what happened. Apple stayed in the fight and through product development became the operating system of choice for millions of people. Chrome was created and became a better browser than Internet Explorer. And now Internet Explorer is gone. So I, well, I just really cannot imagine it. History has shown that anybody can be toppled. And, you know, Google, you know, they've been able to keep their spot for so long, but I have to think that at some point somebody will come around and offer a service that is somehow better and will will start to eat away at their market market share only because history shows us that's what happens. Um, so to answer your question, I don't see it where one company ends up owning the internet, you know, per se. But I do think that, you know, whether it's Facebook and the fact that they own Facebook and Instagram, They've completely dominated the social space. And then Google, who owns the two biggest search engines in the world, has completely dominated the search space. Now, that's a trivia question for you. If Google is the biggest search engine in the world, what's the second biggest search engine in the world? I don't know if Yahoo's still around or... They are. Or the one that doesn't track you. Yeah, it's a couple of those. And I think that's that's an area where I, I hope that people can can beat Google a little bit. So like... DuckDuckGo is one where they're all about privacy. But the second largest site in terms of generating searches in the world is YouTube. Who owns YouTube? Google. Google. You know, tough to compete with that. Tough to compete with that for sure. But I I have to think that somebody will come along. And, you know, I don't wish for the government to get involved and, and break up Google. Just out of curiosity, I was reading antitrust laws and and what under what grounds something like that could happen. And it's amazing, these laws, like I think the, um, the, the antitrust law is actually called the Sherman Act of 1870. Like that's, how, that's how crazy, like these laws are from the 1800s and, and we're using them to, to make decisions about, you know, these tech giants in the tw- 2000s here. Although I suppose it could be argued that human nature hasn't changed all that much. And if these laws are there to govern that, then they're still valid in some way. Right. Absolutely. And, and, I, and as I read it, I thought, you know, this makes me think that Google is not doing anything wrong because the Sherman Act says that if a company is dominant in their space through just making a better product, then that is not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not reason to break up a company. And the reality is Google is just the best at providing search results right now. So until somebody else can figure out a way to top their algorithm, 
it's going to be hard to beat them. But the brain trust that created Google won't be around forever. And I imagine that people who are in Google now and are as smart as those guys were are probably saying, we want to be like them. Let's go start our own thing. And I think that's the best thing about America. And I hope that happens soon. And I I wish them much success. (laughs) If you could change any aspect, what would you change? I'm worried about AI, artificial intelligence. We use AI in a media format. So whereas if I wanted to say I had a travel client and I wanted to build a search campaign for them, I would just write down every single keyword I could think of that might be applicable to them. And through trial and error, we would see what's working and we would add and subtract from that list just through a lot of hard work and a a lot of manpower. Those days are gone. I mean, it is now like you go in, you say, this is the website I'm going to promote. And Google will say, here's the keywords you should buy. And if they don't work, they'll pull them out for you. And if they do work, they'll spend, they'll bid higher for you and they'll give you suggestions on what else you should add. And you could just say what you're willing to spend and they'll do it all for you. So it's gotten very, very automated. And I worry about jobs for people. I really do. So that's one thing. And then, you know, and I think that's just what I'm seeing in my, in my world. Imagine if you're a truck driver right now, right? And you're looking at technology taking away your job, a job that seems so safe you know, when everything else was going on, it's like, well, they still need people to deliver those, those Amazon products, but maybe not, right? So I do worry about that a lot, about automation and about a deteriorating job market just through advances in technology. I play a small part in that because I use those tools. I worry about that for sure. I worry about there being enough jobs for everybody in the future. So that's one thing. And I still think that, you know, tech needs more women. They need more women executives. They need, um, you know, I think more equality. We need to give more kids chances. I think my kids will have advantages that kids who live in the Bronx won't just because I'll help them find a job or an internship. Or that's one thing that I, th- I hope the tech community can can work to solve. So I think a lot to worry about. And I, I feel blessed that I came into this world and, and had my career while, you know, they still really needed people. You know, I hope we can find a a balancing, a middle ground here between using technology to make things more efficient and better, but not eliminating jobs. I understand that technology is playing a big role in a kind of scary, kind of a scary practice of, of automating everything. And, you know, when I go to a supermarket now and I'm able to check out without a teller, that hits me because I know that that's a job somebody doesn't have right now. And, uh, and, I, and I worry about that. Overall, would you recommend it to people suited to it? Absolutely. To be fair, my, my kids are not, are not coders. When I ask really good engineers, how did you get into coding? And what would you recommend if I want to get my kids into it? They all give sim- similar advice, which is you can't force them into it. There has to be a natural curiosity. And a lot of the really great engineers that I've worked with didn't really get into it until college. So I do think that it's a great field to get in. And I highly recommend everyone, especially kids, to get some basic understanding of computer coding. Because no matter what you do, it's going to play a role in that career in the next 30 years, 20, 30 years, which is when they're going to be at the peak of their career. 
one of my first months or so at, at um, J. Walter Thompson, the guy who ran our department was a guy named Ron Frederick, and he was a brilliant guy, went to Princeton, super nice guy. We were having a terrible day, and I remember this well. One of our clients was Merrill Lynch, and Merrill Lynch had created four separate commercials, four separate 60-second commercials for the Oscars. And the first one was Bo Diddley, and the second one was Willie Nelson, or, or you'll see why I don't remember in a second. But we're all excited. Uh, the first commercial break comes on, and there's the Bo Diddley commercial. It looks so good. It was great, so well-produced. looked wonderful. Half an hour later, here comes the second commercial. It's Bo Diddley again. Big mistake. A second hour, there's Bo Diddley again. Third mistake. It turns out they ran the same spot four times instead of the four different spots. So we're in this meeting just dealing with the hellfire that's going to be coming our way. And we're at the Park Avenue Atrium in Manhattan. And it's, you know, February when the Oscars are freezing cold. And while we're all dealing with this, there's a guy outside washing the windows on a scaffold 50 stories up in the howling wind. And my boss, Ron Frederick, turns and looks at him and then turns back to us and says, we've got it pretty good, don't we? All things considered. And, and I feel that way. I've got it pretty good. And I'm very, very appreciative of the career that I've got and, and that I've had and the life that I lead. And you can have a wonderful career in the tech space. And there's so many opportunities that I would absolutely encourage anybody who's interested in it to, to go for it. It could take you into solar panels and self-driving cars, into Google, Facebook, or a small startup. It could take you to a million different places. And that alone, I think, makes it a really exciting field to pursue. Tell us about your proudest moments and biggest disappointments in your career. Well, I think I've talked about the disappointments. You know, twice we thought we were going to sell or, or I worked at companies where we thought we were going to sell and it fell apart. So... I've relived those enough. When I think about my proudest moments, and I haven't really thought about that in a while, but I think there's still like just kind of really minor ones. Like when I first started at Sandbox, I was trying to get a sponsorship from Coca-Cola and I could not get a meeting with Coca-Cola. And no matter what I tried, I just could not get it. And um, nobody could. We all tried forever. We could not get a meeting with them. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. So I flew down to Atlanta with a gift basket and sat in the lobby of the Coca-Cola offices in Atlanta until their head of marketing agreed to meet with me. And he did. And it was just because I would not accept no. And, you know, it was minor. And, you know, I think we got a small deal from them. It wasn't a groundbreaking thing by any means, but it felt good. And I just really kind of kept that with me for for years, that just not giving up attitude really paid off. So I I remember that super well, and and I reflect back on that a lot. And then I think, you know, if I kind of reflect a little bit, I've started a company here in Cold Spring, and I thought it would be just me. I moved up here because at the time I was the fifth person of a four person, a fifth person of a five person company. The other four were in San Francisco and I was in New York. So I said, let's move out of the city. Let's move to Cold Spring and I'll have a home office. That'll be great. It doesn't make sense to live in Manhattan and work from home. But now 
12 years later, I can reflect back on the fact that I've helped create probably like 80 jobs. You know, a lot of them here, we've had as high as I think 18 to 20 people here, and then as high as 30 to 40 people in San Francisco all at the same time. So we've probably had 100 employees over these 13 years. And I like creating jobs for people. I like to know that I helped somebody advance their career, support their family, pay for their kids to go to college, whatever it may be. I very much value anybody who creates jobs for other people. And the fact that I've been able to do that in my career is very rewarding for me and and certainly one of the happiest things for me as I look back on, on these past 20 years. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? Sure. I mean, well, now, you know, back to the future style, I would go, you know, I would have gotten a job at Google when they were 10 people, you know, or Netflix or so certainly in hindsight, there were companies and maybe even opportunities I had to work at these companies that I didn't pursue because to me, they were they were a no name company, just as they were to everybody. So that's a big one. I, I would have loved to have gotten in at a Netflix or a company like that, which I love and which has really changed the, the world, at least in the terms of Netflix, the world's TV watching habits. Right. So that's one thing that I would do differently if I could kind of go back to the future. I wish I had taken my own advice and learned more about computer programming myself. It only would have helped me. So I think those are the two major things. I mean, I got to travel a good amount. I've I spent some time in Costa Rica or a couple other countries while I was doing some work. And I've been able to travel a good amount, which feels great. And maybe some more of that. You know, I think when you're, and this is advice I would give to, to kids, you know, when you grow up in New York, like I did, you go to SUNY Albany and then you live in Manhattan, you know, an opportunity to go live somewhere else seems like either, oh, I could do that at another point in my life or, you know, I love New York. I don't want to leave New York. But, you know, I, I certainly wish that I had spent a year or two in another country like Europe or something like that, or even another state. I, you know, I never lived in California or, or anywhere else. So I, I feel like I could have broadened my personal horizon a little bit more than I have. I think those are kind of two things if I could do it all over again. This interview has been chock full of advice. So I'm not sure if you have more, because my next question is, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in this field? I would say, depending on, on the kid or the, the person, all the skills that are required to be successful in this field can be self-taught. You can learn anything nowadays. So if you are elementary or middle school kid who's interested in tech, go to code.org. Go to code.org right now and start playing around. Start messing around with Scratch. Start learning how to drag and drop code. Go to Grasshopper, which is another free coding tool, and just start playing around and get comfortable with the tools that you'll be working on. Just like, you know, the most successful mechanics in the world were probably taking things apart when they were a teenager, right? It's that natural curiosity. When we started this, curiosity was, I think what I said is maybe the most important trait. And I think, you know, it could end on that too. Be curious, read all you can, watch all you can, mess around, try to build your own products, try to build your own app, build an app, build a website, do all these things. That's what really interests me as a hiring manager. And I'll tell you, when I hire somebody, 
I don't care if you went to SUNY Albany or Cornell, to be honest with you. I'm more interested in what do you do in your free time? Show me something that makes you excited. Show me something that you're passionate about. And if that person says, oh, here's something interesting I built, or here's something that I'm trying to teach myself, that is really, really exciting. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, this is a kid or a person who I want because I know they're going to be a sponge. They're going to learn and I'm going to expose them to things. And in two years time, who knows where they might be? You know, I mostly hire people out of college here and we have very little turnover. And I think it's because you come in and if you're curious, you could end up doing anything. You might be doing sales or you could be an engineer. But the main thing I'm looking for is somebody who's curious, who wants to learn and who takes that desire and acts on it on their own. So that's the advice I'd give. Get out there, mess around, play around, teach yourself as much as you can have fun, and then come see me and and I'll, and I'll give you a job. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you think it's important for anyone considering a similar path to know? You know, I, I fixate a lot on schooling and, and, you know, I'm so, I'm so sick for kids nowadays who, you know, come out of school owing $200,000 or $300,000. And I just, I'm not convinced that that's necessary. And that's advice I'd give and, and maybe that I haven't touched on yet. Like you can, I think it's quite well known now that the greatest entrepreneurs from this field are mostly college dropouts. <laughs> so, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you that their curiosity and their entrepreneurial spirit was much more important than anything else to their success. The founders of Google did not drop out of college. They went to Stanford and, and um, I think Sergey went to University of Maryland. So it's not the same in every case, but don't think that you need to come out of college with $300,000 in debt to be successful. You don't. You need to be curious. You need to be smart. You need to be a good listener. You need to be respectful. And, you know, I think go to college, but go to SUNY, go to Binghamton, go to Albany. You can learn incredible things there and you can come out of there and, and you'll be just as hireable as anywhere else. I, w- I was at a Google partner event and there was a Q&A and I asked them because I'm curious for myself. I said, I remember when Google would only hire people from Ivy League schools. How has that worked out for you? And the, it was the head of HR. She said, we stopped that practice because we learned there was no connection between future success and the college the person came from. Yes, there's a connection between the degree type and future success in that field, but not in the university they went to. So, that's, you know, maybe that's advice for parents too. you know, don't just think that your kid needs to go to a $75,000 a year school to be successful in tech. They don't. They just need to be curious and they need to be a hard worker and they'll do just fine. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, Dave. Thank you. That was really enlightening. Thanks for having me. It was good talking to you. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.